This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Monty Altahami and Dr. Jonathan Myers, your Hola. favorite psychiatry residents. That's right. We're coming in English and Spanish today. Is that we are right? a multilingual podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, we are back at it again. Another amazing episode of Psych Debates. And this time it's about money and mental health. Um, and we are so excited about having uh, Dr. Annie Harper uh, who's going to be our guest today. Um, she's a social anthropologist who studies poverty, finances, and mental illness. And uh, she's currently at Yale University and is the director of the Connecticut Mental Health Center Financial Health Project. Um, she is very passionate, as you will be able to tell in this episode, about this issue. And we have so much to learn from her. Indeed. Uh, this is a very exciting topic and that a lot of what Monty and I see uh, in our work as psychiatry residents is people with both serious mental illness and people with financial problems. And it can be one of the most frustrating things in the world because we know, okay, well, we have these things that we can do, but the system is not deni- designed in such a way that our patients can actually get the help that they need. Um, and so it's, so we end up seeing a lot of them uh, uh, to their detriment in the emergency department settings, in the inpatient psychiatry settings. So, so I'm interested to see what Dr. Harper has to say about interventions and where we're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's whenever you hear the word finance, I think that scares a lot of people uh, because um, not, not everyone is versed, not everyone is comfortable. And Not everyone is uh, has several hundred thousand dollars in debt from medical school as well. <laughs> some, some of us are. And, uh, I, w- I would say that, you know, particularly for our patient population, uh, which are even more, uh, more uh, vulnerable uh, when it comes to these issues, I think it's, it's so important. And, you know, this is something that we sometimes discuss with patients is something called uh, activities of daily living. Um, and particularly independent activities of daily living, which means things that you can do on your own, like dress yourself, take a shower, take care of your taxes, take care of your finances, get your groceries. And I think one of the first things that tends to go first is your ability to do your own finances. And that's reflected not only in like the context that these words are used, which is typically in more like progressive, cognitive, decline dementia patients, but I think in, in uh, patients with severe mental illness and patients with mental illness in general, um, that your ability to take care of your own finances is compromised. So imagine a system that is like designed to make profit and sometimes at the detriment of the, of the consumer, if I was to say this controversially, and now imagine that system with somebody who has less capacity to kind of like game the system or like uh, play the system or play the game. Um, and so I, I think it's it's so interesting and I think it's, it is unfortunate um, that we sometimes feel so overwhelmed by it that we don't have the right skills even as providers uh, to be able to guide our patients. Um, 
And, and I know Jonathan can can definitely relate to this. But before that, visit. You're us saying at I don't have psych- good uh, financial skills, Monty? Is I- you're trying to insinuate something? <laughs> I'm not saying it's no, not true. But I think Jonathan is is uh, out of the people that are in this podcast right now. Is probably <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> with the most financial skills. Um, so I would say uh, uh, visit us at psychdebates.com, the home of mental health debates, discussion, and education. Yes. Uh, we thank you guys for your emails. Uh, we have been getting some feedback on our podcast relating to debate. So we appreciate you for reaching out and emailing us. Uh, do feel pr- uh, free to reach us through the, our contact form uh, on psychdebates.com, our contact page as well. Um, if you have any questions, suggestions for us, uh, you'd be able to contact us that way. And we are more than happy to incorporate your feedback. Uh, or reach out to guests that you think might be interesting. Um, yes. Also, it would be really helpful if you could leave us a review in whatever uh, podcast platform that you use, whether it be Apple, um, uh, Google, Spotify, and, and what else, and subscribe so that you can get our latest episode. Yes, thank you very much. In, indeed, positive, negative, we want to hear it. You tired of my dumb jokes at the beginning. I want to hear it. I may not stop them, but <laughs> I at least want to hear it. I think I've heard some positive feedback. Um, uh, some positive oh, feedback. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There's the truth. <laughs> it's, I, I say the word some with, with, uh, with you know, um, with some emphasis. <laughs> <laughs> it came across. Don't worry. <laughs> And again, guys, I, I do want to repeat this uh, because this is an educational um, podcast and platform. We don't we don't get paid to do this, um, fortunately, unfortunately. Um, and we are basically doing this to help kind of spread information about psychiatry because we're really excited about psychology, mental health, because that's our life passion. And um, we want to make sure that you guys know that this not this psych debate is not represent um like any positions of any institutions that we belong to um, and do not take this as medical advice. And certainly this episode do not take it as financial advice uh, for your personal uh, case or situation. We're just here to give information um, and you can uh, consider and reflect on it. Hey everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode. Dr. Harper is here with us today. She is a clinical, uh, cultural, social anthropologist out of uh, Yale University, where she did her doctoral studies, uh, particularly looking at vulnerable populations in South Asia. Uh, she's already, uh, she's uh, um, originally from the UK, has lived part of her life there. Uh, and now has devoted her uh, work to looking at um, Connecticut's mental health um, financial health project, which is originally funded through the NMIH. Um, and so we're, we're so excited about having her on, exploring the topics of financial health and uh, the topics of the mental illness relations to financial sustenance. Now, I do want to start with a with a general question. We tend to do that with most of our uh, debates, discussions here. And and for this one, I want to ask, what what is the relationship uh, between financial sustenance and mental health, Dr. Harper? So thank you for having me here. It's um, it's really a pleasure. And I will actually just start by saying that you're very welcome to call me Dr. Harper, but 
you know, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I just want to be clear about that. Um, so yeah, especially given that I'm talking to an audience of people who are becoming doctors. So just becoming, just to be clear, I'm like the PhD type of doctor, not the other. The, 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 the smarter type, I say, the research <laughs> type. <laughs> well, the use, not the useful type is what I say. Um, so that's actually a pretty huge question, right? I could spend an hour talking about it, but I'll try and just give you kind of the brief general answer. And I think the answer is um, there's a very strong connection. And the we know from research that the the connection, there's a very strong association, right? When people are poor, when they have low incomes, when they have low wealth, which is much more not as well studied as income, when they have low incomes and low wealth, they're more likely to have mental illness and mental health problems. So we know that there's a strong association. There's there's kind of endless debate around what causes what. So some people claim that it's a kind of social, I think it's called social drift hypothesis, whereby when people develop some kind of mental health problems, they lose their jobs and they're more likely to sort of become poor over time. And then other people argue for the other direction of causation, which is when you're poor, you're more likely to get stressed out and, and, and have mental health problems. And in particular, we do know that when... Um, children who are born into very low income, into very sort of high poverty backgrounds are more likely to have serious mental illness as adults. So I think the answer is there's a very strong association, there's debate and discussion around what causes what, but from my perspective, um, I don't, I'm not as interested in what causes what, because it's clear that the two kind of feed into each other. Um, and one thing that is very clear is that when people do have a serious mental illness, a psychiatric disability, regardless of whether that was a cause of poverty or whether it's causing the poverty, it's very clear that for people in that situation, if they are also poor, then that poverty, that financial difficulty presents a real, uh, a very difficult barrier to their recovery, to their, their being able to live a good life um, with or without their symptoms. So they think that to me that begs the question: What can we do about this? It, it seems like such a such a, a frustrating situation for you know me and Monty who experience this on the front mm -hmm. line all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like uh, you always feel like so small uh, when you're in face of systems um, as a provider, as a researcher, as a patient, client, uh, and even as administrator and manager of an institution. I feel like. Um, there are so many things, especially when it comes to financial th systems and how they interact with mental health that makes it so uh, alien, but also all controlling. Um, and I think that's that's why I think it would be important to learn about those systems and p perhaps think about ways of changing those systems if need right. be, as, as Dr. Harper's doing. Yeah, I mean, what to do about it is, and, and it's funny that what you've just been talking about, how frustrating it is for people, especially if you're engaged, if you're like a medical professional, when you're working with people and you can you can tell that a lot of the, the difficulties they're having are not for some biological reason, but, but are related to their financial difficulties. It's so difficult because you personally don't have the answers. And frankly, it's not even like you can refer them to a, past, a person in the office down mm -hmm. the corridor who has the answers that to would be problems. great that would be, that would be awesome <laughs> but, I, but like, I will yeah. say i mean i will say that the the, the, the you, you can you, you've got kind of from the small local level solutions to the kind of large sales scale solutions that are really going to take a long time time to happen i think at the very first thing you can do as someone who's working on the front line with people who have you know mental illness but also happen to have financial problems is simply to recognize it um 
to recognize that it's a real problem. And also I think very significantly to recognize that um, what often, at least in my experience, what often might present as a mental health problem to someone whose focus is on healthcare actually may be in fact a finances related problem that when you're looking at it through the filter of, of mental health care seems like a mental health problem. And I'll just give you an example. When I was first getting into this work and I had studied banking and poverty for some time and I was starting to work in the mental health world and I was uh, spending time interviewing someone who had a serious mental illness and was also having a lot of problems with her banking relationship. And it was all going, you know, it was all going very wrong for really reasons that were out of her control. And a few weeks later, I was having some kind of focus group. Anyway, so so then I was speaking with, with a group of clinicians trying to understand their perspective on finances as, as it related to their, to their patients. And one of the uh, clinicians started to talk about a particular patient that she was working with. And she was talking about how this patient had deep, you know, was very paranoid because of her illness. And one of the manifestations of that paranoia um, was that she thought the bank was stealing from her. And she was telling me this story and I was listening. And as she got into the detail, it suddenly clicked that I knew who she was talking about, right? And the person that she was talking about was indeed being stolen, was her bank was stealing from her, mm. right? She was being charged excessive overdraft fees for really, unre in, un really unreasonable reasons. I mean, basically, Legally, you wouldn't say the bank was stealing her, from her, but in terms of the way she was experiencing and the way I perceived it, the bank was stealing from her. Yet the clinician who was working with her assumed it was something to do with her mental illness. It was to do with paranoia. And I just think as, 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 a, as a kind of frontline carer of people with mental illness, just being able to kind of pick apart, and it's not straightforward often, but being able to pick apart when something is genuinely kind of, you know, with the symptoms of their mental illness, or when actually it has to do with uh, poverty, to do with finances. And if you just talk to some other poor person on the street without mental illness, they would have the same kind of problems. I just feel like we tend to pathologize the sort of poverty related symptoms in, in people with mental health problems as if it's just like yet another sort of symptom and maybe a cause for you know further medication or whatever it might be. So those are, I think, kind of the things you can do as carers, like immediately without having to really do much else. Beyond that, obviously, you you know you're you're trained you're trained to understand psychiatric illnesses. You're not trained to understand what you can do about somebody's financial problems. So I do think knowing what resources are in your community that can help people with their financial problems um, is really important. Everything from you know energy assistance and food pantries to financial counselling to banking products that don't rip you off. Um, to debt management programs, you know, recognizing that these are real issues and, in, you know, not every community has resources to address them, but to know what is in your community. Um, and then finally, to advocate for the larger changes that need to happen, like, you know, overdraft free bank accounts in every bank or a debt industry, you know, a better regulated debt industry that doesn't, um, you know, sort of uh, isn't predatory in the way it is at the, at the moment and better disability benefit levels, removal of asset limits that make it impossible for people with dis on disability benefits to save money. And, you know, those larger things that are going to take a while to change. Mm. And, and that's such a good point. And I want to add also what, what and ask it rather is like, what do you think about other people, you know, other than financial advisors, perhaps people that are like money managers, um, 
which is kind of the equivalent of a fiduciary um, right. for somebody who's unable to take care of their their finances. What what do you where do you think the role of that type of person come come in outside of the context of uh, guardianship and um, kind of very severe mental illness? Right. And, you know, that's a great question. And that's what I, I basically I feel like my work falls into two related buckets. One is just understanding the kind of connections between poverty and mental illness and financial problems and mental illness in particular. And what, you know, what really are poverty related problems. Right. So 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 what's wrong with the banking industry that makes it not work for poor people? What's wrong with the, the benefit system that makes it not work for people but then on the other hand there are people who genuinely because of their mental illness have problems managing their money and I think one of the problems with what we or one of the kind of limitations in what we have to offer people in that situation is that basically we get we have it's an all or nothing it's like either people are left to manage on very low incomes without any support at all Right. Which without a psychiatric difficulty, the amount of money we expect um, people on SSI in particular, I mean, it's seven hundred and ninety dollars a month plus food stamps. It, you, you could be the best financial manager in the world and still get evicted because you can't pay your rent. Right. So we, we either leave people to manage entirely alone on, on resources that aren't adequate or if they're struggling and we determine them incapable, we remove control from them already, right? Through some kind of a representative pay or a conservator, some kind of guardianship arrangement. And while there are some people with serious mental illness who are perfectly good at managing their money and don't need help, and there are some people with mental illness who absolutely do need to have their money controlled by somebody else, there's most people fall somewhere in between, right? And at the moment, we don't accommodate the most people who fall somewhere in between. We only accommodate the two extremes. And, and just as a side point, I mean, I think we have to remember that most of us fall somewhere on that spectrum. And I'm presuming neither of I'm, you know, the people who don't have serious mental illness also struggle to manage their money and kind of fall on the spectrum of being able to manage and not. And certainly as we get older, when you become elderly, most of us sort of fit somewhere on that spectrum. But generally in society, we don't, we either leave people to manage alone or we treat them like children. So in my opinion, um, we need, and this is the, the, the report that I wrote with the, uh, someone from the Yale Law School gets at this, that we, I think we need a, a range of options in between those two extremes. Right? For people who are managing their own money, we need a fairer banking system, a better regulated debt industry. We need financial services and tools that help people save money rather than encouraging them to spend money, which is frankly what most even fintech kind of um, options try and make us do. For people who can't manage their own money, we need um, tools to help them maximize their autonomy within that, that um, the relationship of not managing their own funds. And then for all the positions in between, we need arrangements whereby people can get help when they need it, but without giving up control of their funds. Um, I have I, I can suggest some specific tools that are out there. I'm not sure if, it, if it's okay to mention particular um, financial products, but there are some out there which I think we should be making greater use of. So, for example, I mean, one of the things that really badly affects people with, with, with people who are poor, but particularly people with mental illness, is um, bank overdrafts. I mean, there's there's a reason why I'm obsessed with them because they they really do they are predatory and they push people into dire financial conditions. 
Um, and there are uh, accounts out there called bank on accounts um, that don't have overdraft fees. And I just think it should be a requirement that every bank have an overdraft free option. Um, there's also kind of thinking it moving to the middle of that spectrum when somebody needs help with their finances, but is not does not need or is not willing to relinquish control to somebody else. Um, there's something called the Eversafe tool. There's also some banks offer view only accounts. And essentially that means that you give somebody else the ability to, to look at your account, to see how you're spending money, but they can't actually touch your funds. So, and the reason that's important is because we know that when, um, even though, even when people want help and they know they need help, even if it's for someone who they, with someone who they really trust, people are very afraid that their money might be, someone might steal their money or just, or even, or even manage it badly, right? It's very frightening, especially when you hardly have any money to have, to not really be able to, to know what's happening with it. So people are very reluctant to give up control of their money. And those tools can enable people to get the help they need without worrying that their money is going to be stolen. And that actually that tool could also be super useful for the for people who do have to give up control of their money, because that those tools would enable them to be able to see what's happening to their money, even if they can't touch it. That also springs a absolutely, and that kind of springs this like uh, immediate image when you said the about these tools and this view only account and people's reluctance as anybody would i would and jonathan and and you would as well be reluctant to give anybody your bank account information and have them control your finances and i think you know i had a, a patient um uh in the va actually this this past week um who was in a very similar kind of situation where he was needing to go inpatient uh to to get to mitigate some safety risks for him um, and he needed to make some car payments and other things. And his sister was involved and she was very close and caring of him. Um, and yet he was not willing at all to give her access to financial um, information that he has to be able to make those payments because he's uh, not really he, he's he's for good reasons, not trusting of other people. Um, and especially when it comes to finances. And that tends to be a trend, um, not an uncommon thing. Um, and I think particularly with patients with mental illnesses and particularly severe mental illnesses, uh, because they've been through the system many times and they've been kind of rejected and they've been kind of traumatized at times, unfortunately, by the system. And so they they kind of don't trust anybody uh, and let alone banks. So. Right. And, and I think we, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I think we've seen, um, I mean, research has shown, my own research has just added to what we already knew that these, um, the problem with giving up control of your finances is that it tends to destroy your relationship with the person who is, has control of your money. There's a lot of evidence that some of the most important relationships in somebody's life, you know, their sister or their mom or a close friend can actually kind of be poisoned by the mistrust that, 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 it, that arises when, when that person is controlling your money. So it really is, um, and I, we did a study which spoke with, we interviewed people who had ha who either currently did or had in the past had their money controlled by somebody else. But we also spoke with the representative payees or the conservators. And we spoke with a couple of professionals, but mostly we were speaking with family members who had done that, or friends who'd done it for somebody else. It is not a fun job, right? I mean, I am actually somebody's representative payee. It's 
you don't get paid and the person doesn't trust you and it 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 makes a, a what's potentially a very important relationship very complicated it's work to kind of manage it and um, make sure that you're doing everything you need to do. It's it. Yeah. It doesn't work for anybody. It's really, really hard. And, it, and as you said, it destroys trust. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we, and we, Monty and I see this all the time. We would talk with family members or other people that are for whatever reason, in a sense, legally involved with some patients assets or, or even medical decisions in the case of guardianships. Um, it, it's funny. Monty and I are both at the VA right now, which is the, um, the essentially the the medical centers for veterans in the United States, um, they have a lot of uh, it's 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 like a different healthcare system entirely actually from the rest of the United States healthcare system, and and I I, I preface my my question by saying that, uh, and I also want to say I realize this is not what you're saying, but I want to give a um, devil's advocate kind of question. Um, at the VA, there's such things as giving ser- uh, money, service-connected money, for when a veteran, for example, if they were to go out to a war and then develop PTSD, the government would then, uh, in some cases, depending on the severity and the evaluations that the veterans received, would then give money to the veteran. And then there, there have been times when a veteran has described them, oh, well, now I'm a target because people know I have this money. And so I'm wondering if you are aware of uh, any potential downsides to people uh, having, say, and I realize you're not saying we should just give everybody money, but to, to this point. Oh, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the um, one of the reasons why I think we need to move away from this extreme of like no control to, to no help, essentially, because that's I mean, because. What often happens with, um, I've done a little bit of work with the VA, but hardly at all, but I have colleagues who do. And, you know, in some ways the work's a little easier because it's an awesome healthcare system compared to what else, else the other people have. Plus they get a little bit more money, um, but there's just more resources to give people what they need. But even outside that system, if you um, if you apply for social security disability benefits, you always get denied first time, you usually get denied second time. So by the time people get approved, they usually get a large retroactive payment. And it's a huge challenge. It would be a challenge for anybody to suddenly take care, deal with $16,000, especially if you don't have a bank account. And you hear this kind of thing all the time. And often that money gets taken, you know, so-called friends, suddenly very good friends with you for a few months. you you may overspend it. It's there's a whole kind of chaotic thing that happens, obviously, when people get huge sums of money, and that's true for all of us. But I think it's most true for people who are vulnerable in different ways. So absolutely, I think we need um, systems in place that accommodate or offer people ways to kind of put money to the side, so that first of all that it doesn't affect their other benefits, because that's a huge other problem, right? The whole asset limit things, but also to, to limit people's use of that money and to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. There's no easy answers to this, but I think we could do a lot, a, a much better job than we're doing now. And, and one of the things that I that I sort of would like to see, and I don't want, know what this would look like in practice, but I have, I've worked with a number of people who say, there's no way anyone is managing their money, right? I get my money every month. I pay my rent, I pay my bills. Sometimes I overspend, but I'm, I'm doing it. And I'm never giving up control to anyone else, but I wish I had somebody to hold my savings for me because I just want to be able to save and I can't make that work. 
And at the moment, we don't have arrangement in, arrangements in place that allow for sort of partial control of money or, you know, for, to, to give control of your savings account to someone else, but not your checking account. And it's that kind of flexibility that I, I think we need and we don't have at the moment. And personally, I think that the banking industry has a big role to play in this. Um, we, it's not just that we need to offer people these, these different kinds of arrangement. The banking system needs to offer financial tools and products that make these kind of arrangements possible. And I want to speak to your international um, experience, I guess, if I was to, to say that, uh, in particular work in South Asia and coming from the UK, uh, you know, and I'm originally from Canada, which is a very different um, system than here in the United States, health wise, and also somewhat financially, um, and uh, Sudan, which is also very different. And I think there is something to be said uh, about financial systems and how they contribute to mental health issues in that level um, I don't know what's your experience just kind of, um, been like, uh, I, I imagine that you have some, some unique perspective in that. So honestly, based on my experience in the UK, not much. I didn't, I mm. haven't worked much professionally in the UK. Mm. I've spent most mm -hmm. of my professional life here or in South Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say though, that, um, based on kind of, you know, connections I have in the in the UK there is a fairer banking system in the sense that they there is such a thing as a basic basic bank account that everyone can open that is free that doesn't go overdrawn I think that's actually a European Union directive um, there's a very strong regulatory authority there's sort of powerful figures and organizations advocating for mental health needs which have influence on the the the, the financial regulators so i think it's a kind of safer and a fairer financial system certainly not like it's not a safer and fairer financial system like for the world obviously london and financial markets are a big problem but in terms of individuals with mental health problems it's a little better but most of my experience is from south asia and it's 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 a long time now but what i worked on when i was living in south asia was under was you know, there was, there's been a, a, a trend for a long time in the developing world to think that what, to basically create financial systems that work for poor people. Um, the, the kind of catch-all term is microfinance, even though there's lots of different iterations of it. And what I was interested in, what I learned about in the many years I spent mostly in, in Pakistan and a little bit in Afghanistan and India, was that certainly um, traditional banking systems don't work for poor people. Um, but even the new kind of revolutionary microfinance systems that were specifically designed for poor people often ended up not being as kind of revolutionary and as helpful as we thought they were because um, they focused on, on giving people credit with this kind of idea that, you know, all everybody needs is a loan and they can buy a cow and then everybody can, you know, sell milk and be successful. And it just isn't that simple. So it really helped me understand that when we talk about finances, what people really need to be able to do is to receive money, hold it safely, send it to people they need to send it to, you know, pay their bills and, um, and save for the future and be insured, right? Being able to borrow is important, but it, is, it doesn't solve all your problems. And being in debt is a horrible thing. It's the worst thing for your mental health. So it just made me understand that, that financial systems are more complicated than just giving someone a loan. Um, uh, yeah, and then and then also just also recognizing that there is a, a really this is possibly controversial, but there's a real problem, frankly, with a, with a financial system which has an underlying um, profit motive, right? When you when any kind of financial system, whether it's you know do-gooding microfinance in in a developing country, or even frankly a credit union or a community bank in the United States, 
that need to make profit fundamentally clashes with the need to provide services to everyone, including poor and vulnerable people. And I, I, I think it's something we have to reckon with as a society, recognizing that um, at a certain basic level, there is, we, everyone needs access to fair, affordable financial services that enable them to manage their financial lives. And if we leave it up to the, to the profit-making institutions, it's not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. It actually, it makes me curious when you, you describe all this, it, of course, it just makes sense. And, and I guess kind of along the line of a devil's advocate question as well, what is the pushback that you receive? Like if you were to say, um, it, you mentioned this report and, and mentioning what banks can do to support people with mental illness. Um, what do people say on the you other know, side? That's a great question. Um, because what people say is this is awesome. And then they don't do anything, right? I mean, I can see that. Yeah. Um, and when I say people, I mean, you know, the financial services industry. And I will say, um, so, so, so I think that points to the fundamental tension, right? That this, or this look, I mean, how can you say it's not a good thing to provide services that, that cater to the needs of people with psychiatric disabilities or even just people who are poor? But when push comes to shove, some of that doesn't make money. And banks and even credit unions, credit unions are non-profit, but they still have to like cover the bottom line. Um, it's very hard for them to do and still succeed and still, you know, exist. And I'm a little more sympathetic to that kind of tension now. I'm, I'm on the board of a local credit union and I joined the board recognizing that you, it's, it's not helpful to constantly be critical from the outside unless you understand from the other side what's possible and what's not possible. And really our banking industry is, is very broken. It's, it's very hard for even the, the best intentioned people working in their industry to do the right thing for the most vulnerable among us. Um, and it, it, by, by themselves, it's very hard for an individual financial institution to offer a product that really works for people um, because they're gonna lose money on it. So it's really it, that you really need kind of collective action either for the industry to decide to take collective action which I think will only really happen if they're kind of pushed from the regulatory side, if, if they're required to do certain things. And there's, there's moves towards, you know, postal banking. Um, there's moves towards providing a kind of basic um, government provided free or very, very low cost um, financial services. Um, I personally would like to see the financial services industry, um, the banks and credit unions be obliged to do, to do some of that work. Yeah. And I mean, it certainly is, um, this this a little bit disheartening and ominous when we we come to grips with that reality that um these are uh institutions um that um can exist in some way um and continue to exist in good ways with providing this like a term that was you know used before i don't know if this is used now might be my archaic um, economics uh, 101 from high school corporate social responsibility um which was kind of packaged as um something that can be profitable <laughs> for for better or worse uh for 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 companies and um and i wonder if if we're we're, if if the the good things the good things that we can do for our customers if I was a bank um, is something that is bad inherently because we can't take money from them <laughs> it's kind of worrying. you know corporate social responsibility <laughs> is is kind of problematic and it's still out there believe yeah. me I hear yeah. it a lot. Um, I mean I think it's a it's the trouble is that 
if you're a corporation, if you're a for-profit institution, you have to make money, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, corporate social responsibility, there are some things which are good and make money, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely some things fall into that category and it's a win-win. But I just think there are an awful lot of things that people claim they can do and make money, but when they actually start to make money, Mm. It, it can have a negative impact and, and it usually that impact is the negative impact is on the most you know people who who are struggling most so i uh, yeah corporate social responsibilities social responsibilities is awesome when it works but it often doesn't and it often mm. beca- it's often becomes a kind of you know a flag that people wave um to show what they're doing but you know when it comes to it um it's you really business as usual so yeah i think it i think it's a real problem what if we had a magic and sorry to interrupt Jonathan what if we had a, like a magic wand um I'm just curious you know because I uh for my own literacy I want to think about what what is the aim where which direction should we move if we're not there now which direction should we aim to move and not to get into the land of economics and banking systems and finances but also just from the perspective of as, as, uh, those with severe mental illnesses mental health and how that contributes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to answer both at the same time, because I actually think perhaps a little naively and idealistically, but I, but I think there's truth to it, that if we, I think my arguments about, for example, what the banking industry needs to do to, 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 be, to serve the, to meet the needs of people with serious mental illness is actually much more, it's, a, it's, a, it's about much more than people with serious mental illness. Because if you if you take care of the needs of people with serious mental illness when it comes to financial services, in my opinion, what you're offering is excellent financial services for everybody. So in a way, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine, right? If you if people with serious mental illness are having financial problems because of the way our financial services industry works, you can be sure there's many many other people who don't have serious mental illness who are having similar problems. So I actually think that we need to be paying attention to this fairly small group of people because it tells us um, about like key kind of um, cracks in the foundation, frankly, of a fair banking system for everybody. So I would like to see a banking industry that is designed to serve the needs of those of the most vulnerable. I just think it would be a strong banking system for everybody. So I think the two things go together. I mean, in the shorter term, though, I would say to move away from banking completely, um, we we do a horrible job of taking care of the basic financial needs of people with serious mental illness in this country, right? If you have had serious mental illness since you were young and you don't have a work history, you have to live on less than a thousand dollars a month, right? Even if you and if you earn over twenty dollars, they start to take away fifty cents of your SSI for every dollar you earn. Right. So if you're doing the right thing, if you save money, you get $2,000 in the bank and they take away your SSI for that month. And, you know, I think we did a survey and we found that something like 20% of people on SSI or SSDI have been paying an overpayment at some point where they've, you know, at some point or another, they became ineligible because of having earning a bit too much or having some savings in the bank. And so now they're not getting $790, they are getting like you know, six ninety a month because they're having to repay Social Security for that the money that was overpaid to them. Um, it's just it's just shocking, frankly, how we treat people financially who aren't able to work. And at the same time that we punish them for being unable to work, we make it almost impossible for them to go back to work because of all these strict rules. And I do think it's exciting though that there's a bill that I think um, oh. 
I'm going to get the name wrong. Sherrod Brown, who is it? Congressperson, Senator, I can't remember. But there's an awesome bill out there, um, which is which they're trying to hopefully if the the the, the current bill goes through, um, that it will increase the payments that people um, get for SSI and will change some of those income earning and asset limits. So I think for the first time in decades, we potentially have a chance of, of, of redressing some of this injustice that's been happening. Wonderful. And, and Dr. Harper, as we end, uh, we reach towards the ending of our conversation today, I'm wondering if there's any just last minute key takeaways or extra points that you wanted to get across to our audience of, of both lay and um, people involved in mental health. I think really the key thing that I try and get across, and I said at the beginning, but I think it's worth repeating, is that we really need to be able to understand the difference between a mental health symptom and a financial problem symptom. I think too often people are judged as, um, you know, have it as their financial behavior is seen as a mental health problem, where if you have worked with people who live in poverty, like I have, who don't have mental health problems, you understand poverty makes people sick. Poverty kind of is a sickness. And just taking it seriously and recognizing that people, people may seem to make strange financial choices. We often see people as irrational, but often when people are living in that kind of financial desperation, what looks like an irrational choice to us is actually perfectly rational and nothing to do with any kind of like mental health problem. So I think just really taking seriously and recognizing the way that people behave with their finances and not, um, you know, judging, making sort of moral judgments based on the financial decisions that people are making, because frankly, people with a lot of money make much more stupid financial decisions than people with not very much money. We're all guilty of that at one time or another. Absolutely. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Harper. That that was really insightful. Um, I would say like we could we could spend hours talking about this, and uh, I would feel like I would get heartburn and get more burnt up <laughs> about just the 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 systems that we have to face and the the challenges that face people and sometimes it feels like we're using different a different language um right. and so there's a there's a lot of uh gaps there that need to be filled in so i appreciate you for your awesome work um we'll definitely be attaching uh the article to our, our podcast so our audience can check it out um jonathan any last uh remarks check out the article Okay. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, Thank I appreciate you so much, Dr. I appreciate Harper. You. Okay. Appreciate you. Take care. Okay. Bye.